I was going to say to you all this morning that um, you have survived a half a week of President Biden. But since we are now on Facebook and Codpan and Apple, so all these things he just named off, I better be careful. I'd probably get stricken off, strucken off, stricken off if I do that, right? It seems to be the way things work anymore. You uh, got to be careful what you say. So maybe it'll be interesting to see how long it is before you know, we start talking about abortion or homosexual marriage, and maybe we'll not be on all these places, right? Uh, here at the wayside, but I thought that was a thought that I had. I know they are, it's quite the battle today that you are hearing about. And, uh, you know, every, every day you, when you wake up, you just think to yourself, uh, is this the same country that my grandparents grew up in? No, it's not, is it? And uh, <clears throat> all these, I'm so glad our, our founding fathers had the foresight to put some freedoms in place that truly are still significant to us. And and there's going to have to be some, some tremendous overcoming of these issues before uh, individuals are able to uh, strike us from the public discourse. And so uh, we need to just uh, be thankful that we have the opportunity of still presenting God's Word. And, you know, we don't need to take it for, for granted. I don't know how much longer it's going to last, do you? Uh, I don't think, and that's always true. I mean, it can be, it's a day-to-day -day proposition for us as far as doing what God wants us to do. So we've got to be careful, and we've got to be faithful, and seize the opportunities that we have. I think about this uh, over at the school here, whenever sometimes we have devotions, one of the things that I, I always mention is there's never going to be another day like today. You realize that? This will be the only day like this day is. It's really the only, be the only minute, this last minute, and you know how it works. Okay? And so, you know, it, every moment and every day should be an opportunity for us, shouldn't it? Because you'll never repeat it again. It'll never come back. It'll never, you'll never be able to have a, a replay. You ever watch, and I'll be frank, I'm not even watching sports anymore, but except for Mr. Gregory's 31 points. I did watch that, of course. But, uh, but, you know, the only problem with that, I couldn't see any replays. They just went right on through. And you, ever, you ever used to watch and you go to the real live game and, and you're sitting there waiting for the replay? Now, this is back before I got all the big screens all over the place, you know. Remember those days? Some of you all remember those days. You'd go there and they still was using... You know, it was, a, it was a whole different ball game. And uh, somebody would make a great catch, and you're sitting there waiting for the replay. And it's not going to happen. Now, today they've got all kinds of screens that do those things. But you're not going to replay this day. None of us will. It's done as soon as it's over. And we need to remember that we need to seize the opportunities that we have. And, and you can look back at certain things. And I remember the words of you know, James Dobson after he said, goodbye to his dad, and he said, you know, the dad said to him, we may never have this time again, and sure enough, his father had a heart attack after that. And, you know, we need to remember that we have no promise of tomorrow. Now, I'm not trying to scare you this morning. That's not my point. But if I do, that's fine, too. But, you know, it's no promise of tomorrow. It's, we have no promise of today. And we're going to see that we need to be faithful until Jesus Christ, the appearing of Jesus Christ in verse 14. It's a great challenge, too, isn't it, when he comes back to get us. <clears throat> but the title this morning, and i got to get back to this, is A Man of God. And for you today, it may be a woman of God, but the idea here is that we are to be people that are people of God. Timothy, Paul is drawing this book to a conclusion, 
And really, this is the, uh, the climax. This is the high point. This is the high water mark. You ever go into a restaurant and they had a big flood and they said, well, this, is where the, this is the high water mark of, the, of where, the, where the water got to. I've, I've seen these kind of places. Well, this is the high water mark, okay, of the book of 1 Timothy. He has been moving towards this. He has been generating and he has been uh, lifting us and instructing us about certain things to get to this point where he's going to sort of tie it all together today and next week and tell us, you know, exactly how we should conduct ourselves, what a man of God is, what a woman of God is all about. got some quotes for you from R. Ken Hughes' Discipline of a Godly Man. I recommend the track to you. But he has some great quotes, and one of them is this. I, have, I learned that personal discipline is the indispensable key for accomplishing anything in life. It's a great quote. Personal discipline is the indispensable key to accomplishing anything in this life. Secondly, we must get rid of every encumbrance, every association, habit, or tendency which impedes godliness. Boy, we want to see the word godliness again. It's, it's already occurred eight times in the book. So whenever six chapters and you have it eight times, boy, that becomes significant, doesn't it? You know, because that's what he's... He wants us to be godly. He wants us to be like him. And so, you know, we got to get rid of every encumbrance, no matter what it is. And the third quote is, we got to train ourselves for godliness. This suggests directing all of our energies towards godliness. Godliness is a great word. <clears throat> it's probably a word that's not used much anymore because we are living in a world that knows very little of godliness. It sort of isolates us and separates us out of the pack and makes us look like we are, what's the word in Timothy or, I'm sorry, Peter, peculiar people. You know, if you're a Christian today, you ought to be a peculiar person, right? Isn't that a great word? It's just one of those words that are used in Scripture that talks about us in our lives. And he's going to use a term to start this whole section off that really doesn't occur many times in Scripture. Man of God. Only twice in the New Testament it occurs. It becomes a very unique title. Now, it comes out of the Old Testament a number of times. In the Old Testament, it's used by for a number of people. It's used for Moses and Samuel, Elijah and David. They're all called men of God, and there's a couple other occurrences as well. But New Testament-wise, this is a fairly unique occurrence of that term as far as Scripture is concerned. And so... It becomes significant to us to realize man of God and what a man of God is all about, what his personhood is all about. And so this morning we want to look at how you and I can be people of God. I will change it because I don't want to get kicked off of Apple podcast this morning because I'm too sexist or whatever you want to call this stuff. Uh, we'll call it people of God, all right, because of what's going on here in this section, but man of God is really what the Scriptures tell us here in this, in this area. And so he's, we find it in verse 11. He begins right off with his title. Father, as we spend a few moments this morning, encourage us to be people of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. But thou, so he's speaking to Timothy, notice the subject of the entire passage is really this first phrase, man of God, oh man of God. Now there's going to be some verbs that he will use to tell how this person should live and what this person should do. There'll be four of them in particular. It really is our outline this morning. will be these four verbs that he uses after man of God to tell us how you and I should conduct ourselves. 
Man of God. First thing is the man of God flees from certain things. There are certain areas that we have to not allow ourselves to be involved with. And as we are fleeing these areas and these issues, in just the first part of verse 11 is, the, is where this word is, is found. I got an action for you that I want us to think about. He says, but thou, O man of God, flee these things. You know, the action here is to flee, to get away from. I was doing my study, of course, this week, and one of the individuals that I was studying said that, you know, we got to be careful that we do not get so taken up with what we do not believe in that we forget what we do believe in. Or we get so taken up in all the things we can't do that we forget the things we can do. You know, that's a, that's a good observation for God's people, isn't it? We can become very, very negative in our lives. And he is going to use both here. He's going to say, Timothy, there are certain things that you have to watch out for, but then there are certain things you must do. And really, that is what life is all about. And I think there needs to be a balance between these two. It's not that we emphasize one against the other. But there's a balance between both. We have to flee from certain things. And the action here would have to be the context of verses 9 and 10. Remember last Sunday morning? What's he going to flee from? He's going to flee from the love of money, which is the root of all evil, which some have coveted after their faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Timothy, warn individuals. And you yourself, do not allow that horseman to gain traction or get closer to you, as he would love to do. Because there's always some spiritual Balaam who will bless you for a certain amount of resources. Remember Balaam? Well, read that in numbers. That's quite an account. That's the guy who, whose donkey talks to him. Remember that? I mean, if you want to do, a, do well on trivia, you need to remember that section. I think that's about 16 or 17 of numbers. But Balaam was that prophet who went and he tried to pay him enough to curse God's people. He never got the words out because he wouldn't allow it. But there's always spiritual Balaams running around looking for the highest price to do certain things. And he says, you know, flee away from that. The word flee here is where we get our word fugitive. You ever know or remember a fugitive? Somebody who is on the run and they can't get caught. They have to constantly be looking out. You know, in the old western, the person always, he's, he's running from the law and as he runs, he finally gets to the point where he says, I'm tired of running. You know, the fugitive never gets tired of running. He must always flee from, from any kind of covetousness and being a mercenary. You know, a mercenary is somebody like a hireling in John. The hireling is not the true shepherd. The true shepherd stays with the sheep. But the hireling, as soon as the enemy comes to the gate, he flees. That's what a mercenary does. A mercenary is only in it for the money, right? That's what the word means. Uh, won't do anything unless you get paid for it. Well, he says, you know, flee from that kind of an attitude. Get rid of that kind of an action out of your life because it will hinder you. It will cause you not to be the kind of person that God would want you to be. And he says the objects are things that would catch us. That would be B after A. The, the objects that we are to flee from is anything that's going to hinder us. Anything that's going to cause us to be a, 
stumbling block. Uh, of course, the great Old Testament example has to be Joseph. I mean, that was first on your devotions for the week, and rightfully so. I mean, Joseph was a prime example. Uh, we studied, we talked about him yesterday, the men did together about Joseph, and we spent most of our time with Joseph because he's such a fabulous example of somebody who flees away from temptation. Makes that classic statement there in chapter 38. And Potiphar's wife is putting her fangs out for him, and his point is, how can I sin against my God? How can I sin against my master? He doesn't hold anything from me. But really, how can I sin against my God? Christian friend, if you held that out as your standard of living, there are certain things that would never catch you. How can we do this against the holy, righteous God of the universe? And so the objects are always there. We must watch out for pleasures. We must watch out for love of money, power, and position. Has anything caught up to you today? That's the great question, isn't it? How's your fleeing going from attitudes of covetousness? Having to have more and more all the time. And after last Sunday morning, lack of contentment. But if we're fleeing certain things, we've got to follow after some other things, don't we? And this is the part that we want to really think about. Notice he says, O man of God, the first verb here is to flee these things. But in that word, these things, of course, would talk about the context right before us. But then he says to follow after. So there are certain things, and that would be second, we have to follow. And the man of God, the person of God, should follow certain things. And he talks about this in verse 11. He says, follow after. And the first thing I want you to notice is there should be some intensity involved in this following after. Uh, this is not something that you do just off of the cuff. This is something that you, that you plot premeditatedly to follow after what God wants you to do. It really should be the... You know, a picture of our lives, that we are pursuing, okay? we are after these areas, these qualities that we're going to see. And the word here has the idea of following after, has the idea of determination or persistence or energy or having a purpose. Isn't it great to have a purpose in life? Isn't it great to be going someplace? I mean, you got to wonder about somebody who just sort of gets up in the morning and pops some bird seed and, and, and wanders around and, and sort of, uh, you know, I don't know what he does next. He just sort of exists. And I'm not against bird seed. I sure don't want to eat any of it, do you? I mean, that's just the way it is for some folks. They just sort of, just, you know, move from one place. Just sort of, just fly. No, you got to have some purpose. Why are we here? Why did God place us here? And so he says, you know, follow after these things. Don't just be passive about it. Don't just let it just sort of go. But set your energies towards these things. You know, if we pursue godliness as much as we pursue, and you put, the, you put your own list in there, we would be absolutely fantastic Christians, wouldn't we? Because these other areas seem to catch our attention. Here's the goals that we are to follow. They're found in the last part of verse 11. He says, but thou may, uh, verse, but, yes, flee these things, follow after, and we got six of them, 
And these are six great goals for us to follow after and to make a part of who we are. Let's look at each one up. First of all, righteousness. They're not on the, on the screen, but notice righteousness. Being right with God, practical righteousness. Being right before God and before man. We should be right in our dealings with people. That's what the Christian faith is all about. And we are to be right with God. Are you right with God this morning? Anything standing in the way between you and your God? I trust you've accepted Christ as personal Savior. That would be the first step. But then is there anything that finds its way between you and that relationship with God? We, we need to follow righteousness. We need to be sure that we are right with people around us, that God and ourselves are on the same page. And then he goes on from, from godliness here in I'm sorry, from righteousness to godliness. And I said, that's quoted eight. This is the eighth time the word godliness is mentioned. Let me give you a list. 2, 2, 3, 16, 4, 7, and 8, 6, 3, 5, 3, 5, 6, and 11. It's mentioned the fourth time in chapter 6, the word godliness. I have them underlined in my Bible. 3, 5, 6, and 11, the word godliness is mentioned. Does that mean it's, does that mean it's important? If God takes that much space to mention this quality, does that mean that we should pay attention? I hope so. Godliness is this inward attitude. We've been looking at this in the book because it is such a key thing. It's this inward attitude. It's that right attitude with, that functions right and does things the right way. This is the individual who is not guilty of committing the sin that he condemns somebody else of. Well, you know how that one works, don't you? In my short life, I've found that many times the person who has a problem with somebody else has that problem, first of all, in their own life. They have a tendency to be able to see it in their life if somebody else has that, it just sort of sticks out. It's amazing how many times individuals see their own sin and they sort of put it on somebody else. You know, it's, again, it's easier to, to uh, preach about sin than it is to stop sinning, that old Richard Baxter quote that I've said to you many times. And that's sort of the way it is uh, for God's people. You know, it's easier to talk about it than it is to actually do it. Isn't that true? It's easy to have a conversation, a dialogue. There's a good word today. You have a dialogue if you really want to sound intelligent, you know, about it. Instead of ever actually doing anything about it, you just sort of dialogue. You know, you get down in that group set, and then you all, I probably shouldn't say this, but you know, like, like that AA meeting where all these alcoholics are sitting together. What kind of wisdom are you going to have there, you know? Uh, you need to have God's Word involved in this thing. And we, we just talk about it, but we never do anything about it. It's important to change our lives, is what he says here. That's what godliness is all about. Remember, one of the devotions was 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, where Paul really brings this home, and he prays about this, and he says, you know, I, I don't want to do anything to hinder my testimony. A couple weeks ago, and I really think 1 Timothy has been dealing with the area of our testimony, we 
We talked about that. You know, how important is our testimony? Wouldn't it be amazing? And I've told this to the high school kids at school, the other chapel last week. If, and I don't know how it's all going to work. You've heard me say this before, but this always convicts me. Somebody that I have grown up with or I've known in adulthood, and as they're standing there at the great white throne judgment, the books are open. And as the books are open, they were a friend of mine all their life. I interacted with them. God says, I don't find your name here. Depart from me to that place that burns forever and ever called hell. Wouldn't that be a sobering thing? Because our testimony is such it caused somebody else to turn their back on God. I don't want that on my conscience, do you? That opportunity I had to share my faith with somebody and then my life didn't really back it up. Godliness is that which Tim Paul says, Lord, and I could just see him praying, you know, on those cobbled knees of his and, and that big Jewish nose and him saying to himself, Lord, I don't want to do anything that's going to hinder somebody from being in heaven with me. Should that be the attitude of our hearts? It's not about us. It's about our testimony. Godliness. Paul's statement there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Every time I read that, he talks about how everything is so temporal and we're doing things that are eternal. And then he, he guards himself so that he will not be a castaway. That word castaway just haunts me. That's a haunt you. Knowing all these things about God and Christ and who he is and, and having all this background and all the answers and then not living for him, a castaway. You know, it can't even be effective. It's just an amazing word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 9. If you haven't read it, read 1 Corinthians 9, the last part of chapter 9. Many times it's caused myself to say, Lord, you know, evaluate my life. I don't want to be the means of somebody else not knowing Christ. And I think the unexamined life is not worth living. Never stop and we need to examine our lives often. So, you know, godliness. I think that's the key word. I mean, he's used it eight times. Well, I've got to look and I've got to evaluate. I and mean, this is a personal thing. I want to see where my godliness level is, how close I am to him in the life in which I live. Faith would be the next one. Faith is that confident trust in God. Isn't that a great word? Confident trust in God. You can trust Him. Tim talked about this morning. Satan, that's the, that was the temptation. God isn't good. You can't trust Him. Can you really trust God? You can trust God with your life. Your children. The future. You can trust Him. You know, because He's faithful. We need faith. This is not talking about saving faith. I think in this section, it's got it figured out, I mean, at this point. But he is one who, who we exercise our faith in. I mean, look at, 
there's a day and time in which we as, as Christians in 21st century America with all the events that have happened over the last three or four weeks, this should be a time when you and I have faith in God to take care of us and other things as well. He's been so faithful. And so he says, absolute loyalty to the Lord. Are you absolutely loyal to him today? Trusting him to meet your needs, provide your future, the resources that you need? We're not in competition. God is the one who's using us in our lives. And then he moves from faith to love in verse 11. So here's number four on the list that we are to follow after. Well, it's quite a list, isn't it? I mean, we could take the rest of our lives following this list, pursuing after these things, hard after them. Love. Now, again, let's get the proper definition. This is not the emotional feelings. This is an act of the will where we do our best for the person that we love because that's the definition of what Jesus Christ did for you. He gave you his best with no reservation. And it's not something that you get, it's something that you give. So love is found here. It's unrestricted, it's unconditional, the love we have for God. We must be a lover of God, and we must long for the things that God longs for. You know, a marriage will do better whenever love is involved because those two issues start to become more and more alike. You know, if you think about it, when you marry somebody, you don't know them. It's pretty divergent. But as you live year after year, decade after decade, I won't go any further than that, you know, you start to see what they care for and what they're about, and, and you appreciate the more. That's, what, you know, that's our love for God. The more we see of Him, the more we view Him, the more we love Him. Well, I trust you say that. I trust you love Him more today than you did yesterday or last week. Well, maybe some other time in your life. Maybe even when you were first saved. You know how it is for some people when they're first saved, they're all enthused. I trust you love the Lord more now than you did when you first were saved. Why? He's been so faithful to you. He's been so good to us. Next two words are also things that we pursue. Patience, meekness, perseverance might be the better word, but patience, to remain under. This is not a passive resignation of something, but victoriously triumphing over something. Not, not unswerving loyalty. This is unswerving loyalty to the Lord in, in the midst of trials because they're going to come. They're going to be ours. The anguishes, the difficulties that come our way. We can stand under them. We can know that God is working in our life on a daily basis. Gentleness is the last word, or meekness. The word gentleness probably is a better word because meekness means power under control. You know, you've heard the old illustration. This is the horse that is obeying his master. He has the bit in his mouth, and his power is being used. Power that's out of control is really not much use. Power under control is a marvelous thing. And so we find that this is power under control. This is the person who exalts his Savior, his master not himself. You know, we're following these things. You know, think about your life. You know, are you following these six? 
Is it a constant pursuit of your heart? Lord, as I pray, make me more like you. May I follow you more. What are you following after today? What are you fleeing after? You know, what you, I'm sorry, what are you fleeing from? Preposition right here. What are you fleeing? From what are you fleeing? From what are you fleeing? All these Fs. Now, from what or what are we following? And third, what are we fighting for? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Verse 12. Notice again another, another verb here, fight. Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. We have to fight. Fight the good fight of faith. There's our word faith again. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou hast been called and hath professed a good profession among many witnesses. Fight. We have to fight. Notice the subject in verse 12, and we'll see the charge in verse 13, but verse 12 is a subject for us. A man of God is known for what he fights for. We can tell a lot about a person by what is important to them, by what they battle for. And he says here, you know, it's a good fight. Salvation of souls is a good fight. Purity of individuals is a good fight. Having our minds understanding God is a good fight because where is the battle today? He tells us in Ephesians, doesn't it? It's against the battles our minds in Ephesians 4. And the battle is against, not against flesh and blood. We're not out there punching people. I hope, I hope we're not anyway. You know, we're not out there having some kind of a, a row. No, this is a spiritual fight that we are in where Satan is, remember in Ephesians 6, and he's shooting those darts at us. And we're using the shield of faith and the armor that he's put upon us to, to win this battle. And so the Christian life is a war. You weren't saved very long until you figured this one out. Because we are fighting on the side of truth against error. Today, the, the great battle for the mind is do what you want to do. Forget responsibility. Forget any kind of authority. You are your own authority. You do exactly what you want, anytime you want. That's a very humanistic, ungodly idea. And the battle is, no, we are God's servants. And we are following Him. And we are battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The word here is the idea of a strategy. There's a strategy involved. You don't just go out there and start. You look and you see the street. Any great general is going to place his troops in a certain place, a certain battle, and do things in a certain way. That's what God is going to do. He's going to, going to cause us to have a strategy against Satan. That, you know, we need to fight in this war, and, and we must understand what's going on. He says, you know, he says, but you, and he says, you fight a good fight because you laid hold on eternal life. You're going to heaven. You know, Christ. Eternal life. Whereunto thou was called. Our, our Christian life is not something we just happened into. Sometimes you just sort of stumble into something. Anybody ever done that? You know, probably at night when you walk around in the dark, you just sort of stumble into something. You didn't just stumble into salvation. God called you. And he placed his love upon your heart and your mind. You 
we love him because he first loved us, right? And so, you know, he saved us and he, and he called us. He said, whereunto thou art called. I trust you view your life as a believer, as a calling from God. That's not just for preachers and missionaries and Sunday school teachers. It's all God's children. He's called us to, to do something for him. And so he says, notice, he says, lay hold on eternal life, wherein thou art, thou art also called. God called your life, placed your life in a certain place. And hath professed a good profession before many witnesses. Look, Todd, you know, there's some debate here. I believe he's talking about his baptism. Isn't the person's baptism a great thing? We just had that not too long ago here. When somebody publicly professes Christ as personal Savior. Now, it doesn't save them. They're not ones who, because they were baptized, you know, that they somehow are now in God's... No, it's just that public profession. He says, remember whenever, Timothy, that you publicly profess Jesus Christ before many witnesses? That's what we do at baptism. You know, we publicly profess before all these witnesses that we are God's children. And we don't care who knows. This is a public time where God, before you, I am now your child. Your baptism should make an impression upon your life. Not your sprinkling, your baptism. Okay? I'm not going to get into that this morning. But whenever you enter that water, you were symbolizing that you died with Jesus Christ. And when you come back up out of the water, you are symbolizing that you are now alive with Him and you are changed with Him. Timothy, you know, that should make an impression upon you. Christian friend, that should make an impression on you. That's why we say, well, it's important to be baptized. It doesn't mean you're saved, and we could have this argument all you want. When you read Scripture, that's when individuals, especially in the book of Acts, boy, they, when they did that, they started serving. He says, remember the call of God in your life, and then remember that public profession of baptism that you made before those witnesses and how important that was for you. In verse 14, we have another charge. He says, verse 13, says, I charge, I'm sorry, verse 13, I give you charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things before Jesus Christ for whom Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Not only do we, is the subject here, but now he's a charging us. I give you charge. The word charge here means it's an order. It's a military order. I'm charging you to do something. <coughs> God is looking. Now here's, notice both are called into view in verse 13. Sight of God and before Jesus Christ. God watching our lives. An amazing thing. God's concerned about us. Watching. Seeing how we live. Seeing what we do with the resources he gives to us. And he says, you know, just as Jesus Christ did before Pontius Pilate. I think he's talking about that trial. Whenever Christ stood there. And Pilate says, you know, who are you? Asking those questions. He was very terse in his response, but he says, you, know, you say it. Are you the son of God? You say that. You say I am. Well, he, was, he didn't back down. He was very definite in what was going on. And Jesus Christ would be our example of one who fought the good fight. 
especially when you think about the cross and how all that worked. So the person of God, he flees certain things, he follows certain things, he, flee, he fights about certain things, but also he's faithful. Verses 14 through 16. And a lot of this is a benediction. It's praising God for who he is. But he starts off with a command again, and that would be our word, faithful, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, very definite command. He says, your life should reflect Jesus Christ. Said that already. We keep his commandment without spot, unrebukable. We've talked about that with testimony. You know, that's how we should live our lives as believers. No doubt about it. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until the trump sound comes back and gets us. We have blessed time. Dead in Christ shall rise first. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet him in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Great, great passage. What a comfort it is. But it's also motivating. Timothy, stay with it. Because God called you. You made that public profession when you were baptized. And now you're waiting for that time whenever he comes back and gets you, rewards you, brings you into himself. Time of great victory. Timothy, it's going to be a this is a command that you must keep. You know, you must keep this command. There's, there's been, a, there's been a, a trust that's been entrusted to you, the gospel. There's been a, a charge that's been given to you. You're a man of God, the Old Testament prophet idea. God's direction. It's been placed upon you. There's an urgency into your life. One day Christ will come back. One day Christ will appear. We must be faithful until that time. And then he gives this description of God, and it's a six-fold description. I won't go through all of them, but he says, and that would be our descriptive phrase. He says, which in his time he shall show. He's talking about God. Who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You see the, the, the glory involved with this. You see his power in verse 12, 13. Now you see his unchangeableness. He doesn't change. Isn't it amazing that he never changes? Everything around me changes. Um, you know, I always like to, to get out some of those old pictures of myself. I have changed. You have too. Everything changes. Not only that, but our, our government changes. Our state changes. Our attitudes seem to change about certain things. God never changes. He's always the same. He's unchangeable is really what verse 14 and 15 is all about. Verse 15, which in his time he shall show who is that blessed and only potentate. You know, notice his blessing. He's blessed. He's sovereign. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. Again, he's still in charge. He's still running the show. Nothing caught God by surprise. Nothing. He still is in charge of this world. And this is what he says here in verse 15. Timothy, you know, you need to emphasize that. Remember that fact. 
And then he talks about the fact that he's eternal, the great quality, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach, unto whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and glory and ever, everlasting, power everlasting. Amen. There's our charge. So be it. Uh, he's above history. He's above time. Nobody can see him. He's beyond our ability to comprehend. <clears throat> he can't be talking about Jesus Christ here because Jesus Christ was here on this earth. And you can see Jesus Christ, but you've never seen God. And so the description here is about God himself. And we find that he is light, which no man can approach. Holiness. The word godliness again. He's beyond us. He never makes a mistake. He always does what he's right. Timothy, if you're going to be a person that God can use, you got to flee certain things. You got to leave them behind. You got to stay away from them. You got to say, no, they'll never catch me. And you know, that's true of our Christian life. It's the old put on and put off of Ephesians and Colossians. In both of those books, you know, Paul says, we take off certain things. Ephesians chapter 4, great passage. You know, you put off stealing, but you put on earning a living. You know, and there's a, a list of these things. We put off this, and then we put on something else. You know, you flee away from these things. There are certain things that our Christian life just does not have any business dabbling into. But then we pursue the qualities. And we don't want to get so taken with what we're, what we're fleeing from that we forget what we're pursuing. And we are following after hard. And we want them. And we want these to be a part of our life, that righteousness and godliness, perseverance, meekness. But it's going to take a fight because Satan is going to fight us every step of the way. And our charge is to be faithful. Keep the commands that God has given to us. How are we doing today? How are you doing in this battle, this pursuit that God has given to us? Of course, the first step is knowing Christ as your personal Savior, asking Him to be your Savior. And then after that, it's Allowing ourselves to be used by Him. And as we look at our lives, we discern what we are pursuing and what we're looking at. You know, what is the tenor of our life? Why are we here? What's the purpose that God has given to us? It's important for us to constantly keep that as the focus to what He has for us. One more time together in 1 Timothy. We'll be seeing that again next week. But I want to just charge you this morning, as he says, charge is a word that Paul uses often. Be sure you're pursuing the proper thing, right? The tenor of our life is to pursue godliness in every way that needs to be pursued. Father, I do pray that we will be individuals of God.